Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. And if you're watching this on YouTube, on video, thank you for lending me those eyeballs. Today, I got a gentleman who wrote a book a few years back that I read. And when I finished reading that book, I was like, this is a great book. Please help me welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, Frank Bisgatis. Did I say that right, by the way? Actually, it's Viscatus. Viscatus. I'll say that again. Wait, wait. I got to do it right. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, Frank Viscatus. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Victor. Although after all these years, uh, hearing other people pronounce it the way you did initially, I, I think maybe I've mispronounced my name. Yeah, I assume too much. I assume too much, man. Frank, let the folks know who you are, you know, your background, and then we'll get into your book. Sure. Well, I'm the uh, I'm the co-founder and co-author of Customer Centric Selling. Uh, we launched CCS in February of 2002 uh, after being with uh, the Solution Selling Organization uh, for about seven or eight years prior to that. Uh, and then prior to getting into the sales training and sales methodology side of the business, uh, I had various positions in sales and ultimately sales management with technology companies back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Now, how, how did you get into sales, Frank? I always like to ask that question. How did you get into sales? Like, what was your first sales job? First sales job and how I got into it. Um, well, I was all of 18 years old, and uh, I was at college, and my family was attempting to start up a weekly newspaper, right? And this is back in the late 1980s. And they bought a computer system uh, from a company based here in Massachusetts called CompuGraphic. And after about a year, it was clear that the business venture was not going particularly well. So I dropped out of school to try to help rescue the family business. And my job at the family business was running the computer system. Well, shortly thereafter, the family business went out of business. Uh, and I was left trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And fortunately, I had become uh, acquainted with a lot of the people at CompuGraphic, and I was offered a job. And my, my first job actually was not in sales. I was a technical person. I was an app, what they called an application engineer. I was demo boy. They'd fly me all over the country, and I'd demonstrate the product. <laughs> I, by the way, by the way, the, the reason I'm laughing is that, is that I was demo boy also. I'd never been called myself demo boy, but yeah, I was, the, I was an application engineer, and I would, I would do the four-legged sales call with the salesperson, right? Answer all the technical. But I've never heard demo boy, but go ahead. <laughs> and uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, uh, I got promoted into sales. Against my will, by the way, uh, the, the VP of sales of my division at the time came to me and said uh, that they had a territory open up, uh, Florida, Georgia, North and South Carolina, and they wanted me to move from Massachusetts down to Florida to take over that territory. Well, I don't, Victor, I don't know what your opinion of salespeople was when you were on the application side of things, but mine was not, uh, not that high. I felt like I was doing all the work. They were making all the money, and I was just running all over the place. So I initially turned down the, the offer to go into sales until it was made clear to me that it would be a career-limiting move to do so. No, no, that, that happened to be also that uh, when, I, when I first came across salespeople, I had the negative stereotype, you know, talks too much. They just take people out to dinners and golfing. They don't do much. And we're doing all the real work, man. So I feel your pain. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, it was territory rep. 
for about a year and a half, then a national account rep after that. And then I, I left CompuGraphic, uh, took over as East Coast Regional Manager uh, for another technology company, did that for a couple of years, then ultimately ended up uh, running a division of Eastman Kodak as Director of Sales, sales and Marketing uh, here in uh, based again, back in, here in Boston. And uh, over the course of, <clears throat> excuse me, over the course of uh, those different jobs and, and the different companies I was with, I had gotten exposed to different sales training programs. Uh, I think the very, very first one I ever went through was PSS3, right? Professional Selling Skills from Xerox. I and, remember uh, that. Yeah, yeah, it's, well, we're dating each other yeah. <laughs> time-wise, time but... <clears throat> Um, but ultimately, I, I got connected. Hey, Frank, Frank, I just want to say to people, the young people listening to this, they're going, yeah, these guys showed back in the 80s and 90s. Look, we have historical perspective on what works and what doesn't work. That's what I say to people. Yeah, well, we understand right. it. We sold it the hard way. And That's today, right. I think it's even easier. So, But go ahead. <laughs> well, over the course of it, though, I got, also got uh, uh, exposed to a program called Solution Selling. Uh, and I was actually part of the management team that brought it into one company and then as a regional sales manager. And then I brought it into the division of Kodak that I took over uh, and had great success uh, in both cases. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to see, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I think it's mm -hmm. interesting to see the evolution of all these different sales programs as you go through. Because, you know, one of the things that was very popular in the, in the, in the 80s was, you know, different sales programs were becoming a fashion. And as we went through this evolution of sales programs, I mean, it even continues today. If you think about mm -hmm. it, it's just, but I still think they're basically minor tweaks on what used to be. It's really kind of the same thing. Well, I, and I think that is for the good ones anyways, because mm -hmm. I think that they're all built upon a common foundation. And the common foundation is a, a thorough understanding of how people buy, first of all. And, and then once you understand, once you have a good understanding of what your buyers go through, right, the process they go through, the, the emotional ups and downs they go through, that really your job becomes not necessarily a salesperson, but more a buying facilitator. Yeah, because, you know, one, and I'm sorry to cut you off because you're yeah. hitting something that I really want people to walk away with, Frank, because this, I'm just going to go into the meat. Screw this. We're going into the meat right now because I, I want, I want my, my listeners and viewers to get the meat of what you're going to talk about because I want them to understand your background. You went through the wars of selling. You've been there, front line, up management, the whole bit. But when you wrote the book, Customer-Centric Selling, I want to two things. One is, why did you write the book? And then two, let's talk about these buying behaviors from the customer's perspective. So question number one is, why did you write customer-centric selling? What was the motivation? Well, the big motivation was we, we wrote uh, customer-centric selling starting, we started writing it in 2002. It was released by McGraw-Hill in early 2004. And if you think about the, the whole technology landscape back then, things were, were changing in a major way from, from this perspective. Well, from many perspectives, but a big one being that prior to that time frame, when prospects would interact with salespeople, they almost had to interact with those salespeople. Because we as salespeople back then, us and the companies we worked for, we were kind of the keepers of the information, right? If anyone wanted to know how to do things differently, 
they had to engage with a salesperson, had to engage with a vendor. Well, all of a sudden, <clears throat> you know, the internet gets launched. We make it through uh, the Y2K scare that, that we all went through. And, and all of a sudden, uh, it, it's pervasive. And the amount of information that's being put out for general consumption is just growing exponentially. So now all of a sudden, buyers don't need to interact with salespeople uh, as much anymore to get the information that they're looking for about how to better run their business, how to solve problems they're having, et cetera. And it was really fundamentally shifting how salespeople and buyers interact with each other. And we, we just felt like it wasn't really being addressed appropriately uh, in a lot of the methodologies and a lot of the books that were already out there. Yeah, you said two things, and I, let's, I want to clarify something exactly, because I got millennials going, Y2K. Well, what's this Y2K <laughs> thing? What, what are we talking about here? What's he talking about? Well, you know, 1999, all the clocks were going to switch over to, to 2000. And so everybody was concerned, right? The systems people were concerned that once it flipped over to 2000, uh, it would be chaotic because some of the systems or the programs weren't set up to handle the, the number two at the front of a year. And so they were concerned that, I don't know, Armageddon was going to happen, right? The big scare, the Y2K scare. Uh, and in the end, wah, 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 yeah. nothing really happened, right? That was the other thing. But Frank is bringing up something important that, for my millennials again, is that it was around 2000 when the, really, the internet really starts kicking in because all of a sudden you're starting to get real infrastructure and real information, real indexing online of the search engines. Young people don't remember how hard it was to Google something because you couldn't really Google something. Uh, we had all, uh, what is it, Explore and all these other crappy search engines. But it was around that time that now information was becoming more accessible. And your book was at the forefront of some of these big shifts. And I think your book saw a lot of it. You know, to me, the buying behavior is changing right at the beginning. And so I wanted this to highlight that because I want people to understand that you were at the beginning when things begin to shift. And so, so walk me through, you're, you're, you're putting together this book. What are you, what's your thought process as you're going through it? Well, the thought process was <clears throat> what we thought was happening uh, was that the buying behavior was changing. And what we came to realize was that the buying behavior, believe it or not, was still pretty consistent. What was changing fundamentally was when the salesperson was getting involved in the process. In other words, uh, historically, salespeople were there right from the beginning, helping to identify the need, shape the vision, do all that good stuff. Well, now with the advent of the internet and all this information, buyers started taking themselves through a fairly significant part of their evaluation cycle before they ever engaged with a salesperson. And, and that's how the whole dynamic changed, right? The, the, how people buy things, I still think to this day, really has not changed fundamentally. What has changed fundamentally is when do salespeople get involved as part of the equation? Yeah, I think there was a gentleman by the name of, uh, I think it was Steve Bistridge, I think as his name was. He wrote a book, Selling to the C-Suite. Uh, years ago, and he documented when salespeople actually got involved. And the, the later they got involved, obviously, the less likely you were able, especially in the technology sector, influence the specifications. So that was an issue. Mm -hmm. Like, when do you get access to these customers? And so in, in your book, you talk about changing buying behaviors. This is the first time I heard of this, Frank. This, I mean, the first time I really said, I never looked at it that way. And that is that the, the buying needs change depending psychologically mentally, uh, depending on which stage you're in. 
Can you walk me through it? I know it's going to be hard to visualize this for people if they haven't seen the graphic, but can you walk me through one, the phases, and then the four considerations? Sure. Well, what we've done is, is we've taken research that's been done for years and consolidated it into to this chart that you, you mentioned uh, that documents what buyers go through as they navigate their buying process. And it starts with taking the buying process and really breaking it down into three distinct phases. Phase one is what we call the solution development phase. Phase two is the evaluation phase. And phase three is the commitment phase. And what we've found <clears throat> is that in four key areas, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And those four key areas are the understanding of their needs, the cost versus price of what it is that you offer, your solution, and the buyer's level of risk. That in those four areas, the buyer's focus and level of concern will shift and change over time based on where they are in the process. So in other words, as they navigate the process, different things take on different degrees of significance in the mind of the buyer. For instance, very early in the process, right, when they just recognize, boy, there's, there's something I need to address, right? There's a pain or a problem I need to address, or maybe there's an opportunity that I need to take advantage of. The, the buyer's focus and concern about the understanding of their needs is very, very high, right, mm -hmm. early in the process. But consequently, what's very, very low is their level of risk because they're not really ready to buy anything yet, right? They're just in the investigative stage, right? Mm -hmm. Is there someone out there that can do that? So, so you get this, this kind of paradox of a high focus on the needs, but really a, a low focus on risk on so, the part of the buyer. So, so I want to just highlight, because like I said, I get excited about this graph. You know, that's my, it's, it's my, my thing with this graph of yours. Because again, this was like, for me, the, the light bulb, I go, this makes sense. And that is, again, there are three fra fra fa phases, rather. The solution development, right? Trigger, I need something, some type of pain. So now I got phase one, yeah. I go into solution development. What do I need, right? And then the second phase is once I've thought I found the solution, I, I start evaluating my options. And then the third part is the commitment phase, right? Buy type right. of thing. Yeah, go or no go. So, and what you're saying is that in the first phase, the solution development, I'm just repeating and highlighting what you're saying, is that there's four, I'll say four dimensions, which is your needs, uh, cost versus price, uh, solution fit, right? And then the risk. My words, yep. right? But kind of, yep. and so, but in the first phase, in the solution phase, I love the way you put that juxtaposition between in the first phase of, I think I, I need something. I'm, I'm focused on what I need. I'm not thinking about risk yet because there's no commitment. So risk is not even on my radar right now. I'm just going, what do I need, right? And that's where today, if you think about it, when the buyers go on their buying journey, they search for information to try to figure out what's what. So they're in that phase. What else do you find in that solution development phase? That's interesting. Well, also the, the other thing that they focus on uh, very much in that solution development phase, early in the process at least, uh, is the cost that they think they're going to incur to potentially achieve the goal, solve the problem, or satisfy the need. Because if you think about it, when they just recognize that there's something they need to be tackling, the cost sensitivity is pretty high because they really haven't understood the true business value of achieving that goal or solving that problem. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you look at the chart, what you see is as they start the journey through phase one, 
and the focus on their needs starts to increase, right? It starts off as very high, but it gets higher the more they dig into it. There's, there's a, a consequential drop-off in the cost sensitivity, even if the buyer is taking themselves through the process. In other words, the more they understand the problem and the more they understand what the need is, the cost sensitivity, by definition, starts to drop, right? Because That's they're it's, starting it's, to perceive... Yeah, they're starting to perceive the value of getting this this issue addressed. Yeah, I love I love the fact that the the solution need starts high, but as they start digging, because we all do that, right? Once you start digging mm -hmm. into something, you really start going, oh, maybe I need more than this, or maybe I need to add this, maybe I need that. I'm not thinking about cost. That's kind of dropping, is what you're saying, or I'm pushing it into the background. Is that a better way of saying it? Yeah, it's or it's it's actually I think um, it, it's more being contextualized from the standpoint of once I understand the scope of the issue that I'm trying to address, whether it's a pain or whether it's an opportunity, all of a sudden that cost starts to diminish at least to some extent because I'm understanding the value of, of potentially getting the solution in place. Love it. Right? So what, what, I'll be able, what I'll be able to achieve on the back end. Right. So you start looking at the value, not the price. So the right. outcome. So as we're moving now, now we're going through the solution development phase and we experience this. I mean, I think one of the biggest changes, you know, we've seen is obviously on the internet is the options available to us, Frank. Right. You know, talk to me how that, how that impacts the solution evaluation phase or development phase. I think one of the biggest things that impacts it is the role that your marketing is playing, whether you're an individual doing, you know, self-driven marketing, or if you're part of an organization. Uh, that, that has a marketing department. You know, if you think about marketing's role in organizations historically, marketing historically was the back end of the product development process, right? You know, product, product management would go out, they develop products, and then marketing would figure out how to bring it to market, right? You know, with, with the four P's, price, uh, position, and whatever the other two are that I've People placement. long ago. Like that. People yeah. placement. Like that. Well, now uh, I think that, that one of the things that's changed significantly is rather than being the back end of the product development process, marketing has really transitioned to become the front end of the sales process. So it's really marketing's job to be putting the messaging out into the marketplace so that when a prospect comes to that realization, hey, here's something I should be looking at that you're at least being considered in the mix early in that process. I agree. The, Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Marketing has taken a more prominent role. I mean, in the past, it should have been at the front end in terms of figuring out what the total available market is, you know, how do we package it, what's the right size, what's the right color, what's the right ergonomic design, whatever. But now we see marketing taking a more prominent role because buyers are going online and doing that whole customer journey. And so how, so now walk me through, we're moving into, let's say I've, I've figured out a couple of options, right? I go online and I'm figuring out a couple of options. And by the way, my most recent example is I was looking for a good microphone and I just went online and just started looking for this microphone and I'm looking for quality. So price is being pushed into the background, less of a consideration. Mm -hmm. And so then I remember narrowing down my choices. Walk me through as we move into the evaluation phase, what becomes more important psychologically to the buyer? Well, in the evaluation phase, that's really when the product starts to take on the significance, right? Is am I getting, now that I've got this lineup of what could be, you know, two or three or four 
potential solutions. Now I'm going to really start digging down on which one of them really is the best fit, mm -hmm. right? Wh which one is, is going to get me to where I need to go. But what's happening consequentially <clears throat> as a result also, uh, not only is cost sensitivity starting to drop off more and more, but risk in the mind of the buyer is starting to creep up. Because if you think about it, Victor, even looking at your microphones, uh, I'm sure the microphones that you looked at, uh, you know, some were what we'll call value priced, but there are other ones that probably had a pretty high ticket on them, right? Correct. Pretty high, high investment amount. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, ooh, you know, do I really want to drop a thousand dollars, you know, in the middle of a pandemic on a microphone? So that sensitivity uh, to, to, you know, the risk of making a decision starts to creep up the more serious the, uh, uh, the evaluation becomes. As a matter of fact, uh, as I point out to people when I'm, I'm demonstrating the, the interactions of the curves, is that right when the, the product curve peaks, right, right, right at the, the, the pinnacle of the prospect's focus on is this the right product, uh, I have them draw a line on the chart to go down and intersect with the risk curve, which is on the way up, because that identifies the moment in the sales process that I call the oh crap moment. Mm -hmm. And when I call it the oh crap moment, it's because typically once they come to a vision that your product or the product they want can actually fulfill that vision, that's when they think, oh crap, I might have to actually buy something. Yeah. Right? And really... <laughs> I love that. And, and, and risk really starts to shoot through the roof at yeah. that point. I, I, I love that because it, this is good for salespeople to understand because when we're doing, you know, we're doing the discovery phase with the customer. Let's say, let's put us in like a real time. We're in discovery phase with the customer. The customer still hasn't committed mentally or has gone down that road of possibly buying your solution. So right. they're, they're still focused on the solution, right? Developing what they need, right? So that's always going to be cordial conversation, I call it. But you're really going to have to give them content to make sure it fits their pain. But as they shift into this, whoa, okay, I think I kind of found what I need. How much is it going to cost? And then that part of risk kicks in. You know, what do you say to people or say, how do you train salespeople that, to, what do you train them to say during the evaluation phrase when the customer is really now starting to think and you see the risk curve rising? What do you train them to say or do? Well, what we train them, what they, what we train them to, to say actually uh, is, and what we train them to do is recognize, first of all, that because of all the information that's out there, and available to their buyers and their prospects, that in many cases, the first time they interact with that buyer or prospect, that that prospect probably already has done some research and probably already has at least some idea of what they think they want and what they think you do. So that effectively what they've done, Victor, is, and we see this on a daily basis, prospects are now taking themselves through that first phase of the buying cycle, mm -hmm. that solution development phase, they're taking themselves through that phase autonomous of any interacting with any salesperson. I would agree. Because they can, because they can. Now where, where, the, where the trap is for the salesperson is when that prospect does engage with them, you've got two options. You can just engage with them and march forward, right? And now you're marching to the agenda that they've defined 
Or if you're, I believe if you're smart about it, you've got a plan in place of how am I going to effectively hit the reset button on that opportunity and get them back into the phase one types of discussions. Because it's in phase, the phase one discussions where value is established. And if the salesperson, at the very least, doesn't understand the, the basic value, if you will, that that prospect is going to enjoy by potentially getting a solution, but also they need to establish value that's unique to their offering. So I better have, I better have a plan in place of how I'm effectively going to hit the reset button. So when Victor comes to me and says, Hey, Frank, you know, we're, I'm looking at three different microphones. You guys have, you appear to have a great product. Tell me about your product that the salesperson has to, I think, have the presence of mind and, and the intestinal fortitude, quite frankly, to, to take, to push back gently and say, well, Victor, happy to tell you about our product, but let me ask you first, why are you looking for a new microphone? Well, right. What are you hoping to accomplish? You know, what caused you to reach out in the first place? And, and that's effectively trying to get them back to, okay, what's the business driver behind the evaluation that you've undertaken, right? I or love that. or what's, what's the driver? Yeah. yeah I, I love what you just said, Frank. I mean, you just nailed it. Because I think this is what separates the good from the bad salespeople in terms of close rates. Because... The person, let's use the example with the microphone, just said, tell me why your microphone is better than these two. All of a sudden, the customers basically pushed you back on your heels mentally. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And also, you start getting jowly, not knowing what to say. Whoa, whoa, it depends on what you're looking for. But the smart salesperson, as you say, who has a presence of mind and the intestinal fortitude, not, a, not afraid, they say, well, wait a minute. Well, before I ask, before I answer that question, let's take a step back. Kind of, let's go back to phase one, because that's where I can real establish my value. I love that. Keep going with that. I love that. Yeah, and it's really the ability of the salesperson. And that becomes a qualification event, I think, in and of itself as part of the sales process. Excellent is, point. Will that, will that prospect take the time to go back to phase one with me? Or, or are they going to push back hard and say, no, 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 you know, just get me a proposal, get me your best pricing. You know, we know what we want. What, is that, then, what, is that, what does that tell you, Frank? Based on your experience, what does that tell you when I'm like, no, 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 we've pretty much nailed it down to these three. Let's talk about the, yours right now. What does that tell you? Well, that tells me that, that you're probably pretty far down the road uh, with someone else. And you've probably already mentally made the decision of which one you want to buy. Now you're looking for the justification of why that's the right decision. And you're just looking, you're looking for me to help you check off the boxes so you can buy from the one that you wanted to buy from the entire time. Oh, man, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've lived that experience. You're dead on, my friend. You are dead on. <laughs> and, I, and I think I wanted salespeople to hear that because, you know, it's a good way, as you've pointed out, to qualify the buying opportunity. Is this really an opportunity or am I just justification for their decision that they've already made. So I love that. Yeah. And by the way, just to be clear, so in the evaluation phase of the four dimensions, need, right? Uh, you got the cost versus price, solution fit, and risk. What's peaking at this point? One more time. Yeah, what, what peaks in phase two uh, is the solution curve, right? Where, where they're focused on, you know, will this product really fulfill my vision? Risk is, is starting to creep up. Uh, the understanding of their needs actually is dropping off at that point 
or their concern with the further understanding of their needs. Because if you think about it, that was defined in phase one, right? And, and now once the needs have been defined, now it's okay, is there someone or a product out there that can actually fulfill those needs? In phase two, they're not particularly interested in adding new components to the mix, whether it be new features, new capabilities, whatever the case may be. So they're really fo they're focused on, can you and your product fulfill the vision that I have that was established back in phase one? So you just said something again, just, it's, it's just a gold nugget, because if you oversell what they've already decided they want to try to solve, that's a problem. Salespeople go in there and they just have a bag of goodies and they want to data dump the bag of goodies on the customer just to wow them and impress them. Talk to me more about that, Frank. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th there's a core concept uh, that we have in, in customer-centric selling. That one of the, it's one of 13 core concepts that make up what I call the foundational underpinnings of our methodology. And this core concept is make yourself equal before you make yourself different. Otherwise, all you'll be is different. So in the, in the analogy of your microphone, if you came to me and said, Frank, yeah, we're looking at three different microphones, you know, uh, heard good things about yours, but tell me, you know, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at Sennheiser and I'm looking at Heil as well. You know, how, how's yours any different than a Sennheiser or a Heil? Well, the trap that a lot of salespeople fall into at that point is they say, Victor, great question. Let me tell you all the ways that we're different from those other microphones. And unfortunately, by doing so, what they often miss in the process is what was Victor looking for in the first place? What was it about those other microphones that he liked, they didn't like, that you know, got him to the point of concluding that they should be one of the ones on the list, right? And you end up, if, if a salesperson just focuses on all the ways that they're different, in many cases, the buyer comes to the conclusion that, oh, that's too different than what I'm looking for. Absolutely. Right? Because there's been, no, there's been no context for it. Oh, I love it. I, I uh, love what you're telling me, man, because it's highlighting that what, what, what I preach also, maybe because I got it from your book, because it's one of those things where I, I always tell people, figure out what's similar first and, and then use once they, once the, it's almost like once the customer goes, oh, so you can do all that. Yes, we got all that. That's, that's, yeah, we got all that. But here's something maybe you haven't considered that you might need. Exactly. Exactly. And that's how you build out that vision and, and you create the, the vision that's more biased toward the capabilities that, that you best offer. And you're able to establish value by getting them back and, and resetting those phase one types of discussions. I love it. And so you go back to phase one, you reset the evaluation parameters, priorities, move into the evaluation phase, confirm that you can do them. And they're saying, okay, I think this is going to fit. Risk starts rising because it's like, oh, I'm getting close to making a commitment because I think this is kind of what I've been looking for. Now walk me into the last phase. Now, because this is the part that I thought was really fast. By the way, if you're listening to this, watching this, just really tune into this part because this is where it got juicy, almost like a like a like a telenovela on TV. So <laughs> walk me walk me into the, the last phase, which is the commitment phase, and then talk to me about what's happening with the fourth dimension of the curves, the psychology. Sure. Yeah. The, well, the psychology of, of that third phase, that commitment phase, and what the buyer is focused on in phase three, they're typically focused on risk and price. Right? And, and they're not focused on their needs or your product. 
because now now we're getting down to the short strokes and it's it's getting to the point where I'm going to ultimately be making a decision and all of a sudden the risk shoots through the roof and there's the price sensitivity. Hold a second. Like, boy, Hold on a second. Wait, sure. I'm, I'm going to pause you here, right? Because this is really good. All right. As you're listening to this, uh, need, sol- need is gone. So that parameter is gone, right? Solution fit is gone because we already – it fits. That's what fits. That's right. So we're, we're left with risk and price. Now, the question to you, if you're listening or watching, is which one will be more dominant in the client's mind? Risk or price? With that thought, Frank, give them the answer. Well, it's uh, what the research has shown is uh, it's risk at that point. R- risk, risk is the one that's it's gone through the roof. It's at the highest level on the axis. Uh, and in fact, what we find is that it well, think about it from, from your own perspective as a buyer. Late in the process, especially if you're talking any kind of significant dollar investment, you know, significant commitment, right? You've gotten to this point in the process. You're looking at fundamentally potentially changing how you're doing some aspect of your business or whatever the case may be. What is the easy decision for the buyer at that point as it relates to risk? Not to do anything, right? Just to go with the status quo. And that's why over the years, and we still see this to this day, that most salespeople lose more often to no decision than they do to any single competitor. Yeah, where they navigate. Yeah, the the I'm shaking my head vigorously here because these these sales gurus, pundits, research labs are talking about how status quo is your real competition, like it's something new. You know what I right. mean? I'm like, well, these guys back at customer centric selling had this figured out years ago, right? That it is it, it is not. You're not losing business to your competition. You're losing it to the perceived risk. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. It's, uh, it, it's the major thing you have to overcome. And, and in fact, on, on the other one that's, that's pretty significant, and what can cause them to go to no decision, is think about the fact that they're also fixated now at that point on price. Right? Now, all of a sudden, I'm taking a hard look at, do I want to spend that $1,000 for that microphone or <laughs> that $10,000 for that piece of software, whatever the case may be? And that's helping to drive, that's fueling the, the, the increase in the risk sensitivity as well. Right? And where it, where it gets really challenging for salespeople is this. If that salesperson didn't manage this opportunity correctly early in the process when they were first contacted, which was likely at the beginning of the evaluation phase, if that salesperson was not able to get that buyer back into some phase one types of discussions and therefore understand value and and hopefully build unique value if all they did was navigate from the time they were contacted at the beginning of phase two all the way now through to the point that they're in phase three and it comes time to negotiate well if you haven't established any value related to what it is that you do and it comes time to negotiate what's the only variable you can negotiate on Price. Price. Yeah. Price. That's it. Without value, price is the only variable. This, and that's I, what kills salespeople. I, I, I want to highlight this because it, and so let's kind of peel, let's really dig into this phase right here. Risk is higher. 
at the point of decision than price. Right? Risk yes. is high. So your job as a salesperson, I'm just talking, you tell me where I'm right or wrong, mm -hmm. is to reduce that risk throughout all three phases. That's really your job, to try to dampen the perception of risk. And too often, I don't see salespeople do that. They're hiding the price. They think that's the answer. But I'm like, no, it's the risk. And so talk to me how you see salespeople you know, work that balance because you got to reduce the risk because price isn't the issue when you're this far into the, into the thinking. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, I, I think what it all comes down to, Victor, is, is all of these things are interrelated. Mm -hmm. And it's not, that, it's not that managing one particular aspect of the, the sell cycle or, or the buyer's focus at any given point in time uh, is that there's a magic bullet for any of it. I think the key is being able to understand the behaviors that you're seeing and plan accordingly. And for instance, what I mean by that is no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to tamp it down, the buyer is always going to feel risk late mm -hmm. in the process. That, that's just the way it is. How do I mitigate that risk? If I know it's coming, I need to have a plan in place of how I'm going to mitigate it. In fact, it, it should be driving my behavior throughout the entire process. And I'll just give you a quick example that, that hopefully will uh, clarify this for everyone. Early in the process, the focus on risk is relatively low, right? As they start to go into evaluation, it starts to escalate. Phase three, when it's time to make a commitment, it goes through the roof. Well, now let's juxtapose that with what salespeople in many cases historically have been trained to do with their prospects at these different points in the process. Early in the process, I see companies to this day where salespeople try to lead with a corporate overview early in the process. And early in the process, I would suggest this to you, they don't care about your company early in the process. We're fundamental, matter of fact, there's, there's three things I think that companies look at when they look at a salesperson uh, and, and what they sell. And those three things are people, product, and company. And based on where the buyer is <clears throat> in his or her buying cycle, one of those things is going to be more important than the others as it relates to the process. Early in the process, it's about people. We have a core concept that says people buy from people who are sincere and competent and who empower them to see a vision of how they're going to achieve a goal, solve a problem, and satisfy a need. Product really only becomes important in phase two when you have to prove that your product can fulfill that vision. And company, company really only is important later in the process when you're trying to mitigate that risk. Yet as salespeople and companies have trained their salespeople to early in the process, give them a corporate overview and get them a demo. And the, that early activity is fundamentally out of alignment with how most buyers want to buy. Okay. And it's irrelevant to them. So, so said another way, because this is really important. In the first phase, while they're going through the, the solution development phase, people matter. The relationship, the rapport, the conversations we're having, right? The questions I'm asking yeah. should be quiet. Second phase is we move into evaluation. Now we get into the actual product. And we're talking right. about solving their needs, right? Just paraphrasing everything you just said, Frank. Yep. And then the last phase, you're saying, you're specifically saying, and I agree 100%, is don't talk about your company at the beginning. 
talked about after you've proposed a solution, and now they're ready to listen to who you are. And I would also add, maybe that's where you can talk about maybe some case studies, kind some of a little social proof. What do you think of that? Yep. Add, add to that. Abs absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, early in the process, I don't think it's that you don't talk about your company, but you're conscious of talking about your company in proportion to how interested they are in hearing about it. And when I say in proportion, what I mean is instead of the uh, you know 47 slide PowerPoint deck mm -hmm. with the picture of the corporate headquarters and all that other stuff, you know maybe three or four statements of fact about the company, and and that's it, and then move on from there. And then as yeah. you get into the later <laughs> stages. By the way, I'm only uh, I'm, I'm only I'm only laughing because I see people who they talk about who they are, their mission statement, their vision statement how long they've been in business, how big their, their square footage and their plants are, you know, and they just, blah, 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 blah. you're sitting there going, oh, will you please get to the, you know what I mean? So I'm with you, man. I'm laughing inside. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And, and I, you know, I've said this to, to marketing departments and, and the people who propagate the corporate presentations. I'm not saying that you should never do a corporate presentation, but think about where in the process it's going to help you have the most impact. And I think that's as you're getting later in the process, later in phase two, early in phase three, uh, when you're trying to mitigate that risk that you know is coming, right? And that's making it. them feel better about it. I love that. I love the fact that you tied it to risk. Because now when you tell them about your company, how long you've been in business, the companies you've worked with, that's kind of dampening down the risk a little bit. As To your point, yeah. you'll never get rid of the risk. But you want to bring it down to a point that kind of that pushes them over the byline, you know. Exactly. So, so tell me about the last phase. You know, what are some of the things you typically do or seen done that work very effectively as you're closing this out? Well, I think it's it's relates a lot back to how do you avoid that loss to no decision, right? Which I think is uh, according to a lot of the research that I've seen and some that we've done, it's anywhere between thirty and forty percent of deals end up getting lost to no decision at the end of the process where they just decide to stick with the status quo. So it's really, you know, what can I do to have an impact in that area where I've got the greatest opportunity to have an impact? And I think that there's a couple of things that salespeople can do that will help them have a positive impact as it relates to no decision. The first thing is to qualify that deal out a lot earlier than they might have otherwise, right? It, it, I don't think a, a deal really should get to the end of the process and be lost to no decision where no one gets the business, right? Where they just decide to absolutely do nothing. Uh, a lot of times they'll decide to try to do it themselves and things like that. But I'd like to, I look at it as a qualification continuum throughout the process. Let's make sure that we're understanding what needs to be qualified as kind of hurdles or gates through the process so that when we get to the end of the process, we're less at risk to losing to no decision. You know, but otherwise, the, the, the other more proactive is, let's cause them to make a decision to move forward with us. And I think that, again, all this stuff is, is so intertwined with each other. Uh, I, I bring that back to the salesperson's understanding of the value that they bring to the table and what that buyer's specific current situation is. Because just like we talked about earlier, if you don't establish value 
and it comes time to negotiate, price is the only variable. And just like with price being the only variable in negotiation without value, if you don't have value established, that also, I think, handcuffs you as to how well you can deal with risk. Because if you do want, if you've taken the time as a salesperson to really understand the value, really understand how do they do it today, what are the metrics around how do they do it today, what do they believe is possible given the capabilities that, that you can bring forward, that if you've got that information and it comes to the end of the process and the risk starts going up on the part of the buyer, well, now as a salesperson, what I can do is now I've got fallback positions where I can start talking about, you know, the cost of delay, the financial impact if they fail to move forward. All those things come into play if I've established and built value throughout that, the entire process. And I think that's important. As, you, as you're going through, always build the value. What, what, what I like again about the graph is that it gives you, it's almost like a GPS system. If I yep. know I'm in the first part where it's the solution, I know that people matter. This is where I would build trust, relationship, rapport, as I mentioned already. And then as we know we're evaluating, now I know that the product matters. I think everybody gets that part. And then the last part, and I think that's the big takeaway for me, is that you talk about your company and reduce all kinds of perceived risk right at the end. You're building value, but it's at the end where you really have to start bringing down the value. Because even if I'm looking at a product, I'm thinking, well, what's it going to cost to implement this thing? What's it going to cost right. to switch over? And that's where we start having those discussions in there. And so, you know, I, I got one last question for you, Frank. Uh, you know, do you think, you know, we've gone through these, you know, this, this pandemic. And do you think selling has changed? Do you think fundamentally your book is obsolete? Let me be hard about this. Do you think <laughs> your book is obsolete? <laughs> no, it's a great, great and very valid question. Uh, and, it, and it's one I've, I get from prospects all the time. Everyone, I think, Victor, is focused on what the pandemic has meant to the, the entire selling world, right? And there's been books written. Uh, you, you, I think, on uh, one of your live uh, feeds a few weeks ago compared three of them, right, mm -hmm. about virtual selling versus face-to-face -face selling. Well, I don't disagree with the fact that maybe the medium that we're using to communicate with people has changed a bit. Uh, you know, now instead of me sitting across the desk face to face with you, which by the way was going away anyway, uh, we're now doing it uh, on this, you know, a Zoom call or whatever the case may be. But the fundamentals of what have to be achieved hasn't changed in a, in a great way, shape or form, right? I still have to focus on understanding your needs. I still have to focus on building value around what it is that I offer. I still have to be able to talk about what it is that we do in terms that someone understands the use case for it, right? Not just what the feature is, but how it's actually used and what it's going to help them have an impact on their business. Qualification, the same thing, whether it's, you know, qualification via an email or qualification via face-to-face -face conversation, the blocking and tackling of selling. I believe has not changed significantly. Yeah, it's more I, the it's it's more the vehicle of how are we having those interactions. Yeah, I always tell people it's it's you know the first principles never change. These are certain principles that you have to execute on. And as you pointed out, even when I was researching virtual selling, the three books, what I discovered was that 
the the channels of communication and how we communicate some have gotten easier some make it more difficult depending on your personality but there's also a lot of upsides like on the qualification side but again foundational first principles have to be there and then you build on top of that depending on what channel you want to use well frank uh let them know where they can find out more about your book and your information yeah i would uh love to have them visit uh www.customercentric.com that's our our main website uh and for anyone that's interested in uh some free training we also have the five minute sales makeover uh, which is a three-video free training series that actually covers a lot of the topics uh, that we've covered here in the podcast, including uh, those the buyer curves that, that you love so much. Oh, man. Like I said, uh, by the way, get the book if only for that graph because it really encapsulates a lot about selling. On that note, Frank Visgatis, you know, by the way, I'm going to blame you because I think I've called you Frank Visgatis before and you never corrected me until today. And I find that Very shame possible. on you. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, thank you for being on the Sales Influence Podcast. And that is it for this series. Thank you for joining me. Again, leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you're listening. And if you're watching this, wherever you're watching it, leave me some feedback. Love to hear. Also, check out the Sales Velocity Academy at salesvelocityacademy.com. Over 50 courses, 500 plus videos to help you sell more faster. And on that note, I want you to go to customercentric.com. Is that correct, Frank? customercentric.com check out frank's information get the free courses but more importantly i want you to still get the book on that note this is victor antonio always reminding you that selling ain't hard when you hang out with victor and frank and you know how to sell more effectively take care talk to you later